0: Well, thank you for tuning in to uh, this service of worship from St. Peter's in Dundee. It's good to be together in this virtual way, and we know that the Lord is with us as well. Before we turn to God's word, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Lord, we give thanks to you that you are the one who is not confined in any way, And we thank you that you presence yourself where two or three are gathered together in your name, be it virtually. We cannot be gathered together in body, but in spirit we pray that you would unite us together in this act of worship. And may we hear you speaking to us from your word. So we humbly ask, Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like us uh, to turn to where I was uh, speaking from uh, four weeks ago, from the first book of Samuel and chapter 1 into chapter 2. The title to the sermon I've got today is Hannah's Prayer of Praise. I was going to look at chapter 2, But I decided that it would be helpful uh, for us all, perhaps for myself in particular. But I believe that there is more from the first chapter that I needed to to look at before going into chapter 2, if and when that may happen. The the title, as I said to my uh, intended sermon, was Hannah's Prayer of Praise, perhaps focusing on chapter 2. But I think we could... uh, edit the title to Hannah's Prayer of Praise in the Making, because that is what's happening here uh, in chapter 1. We looked at 1 Samuel the last time, uh, the introductory scenes uh, leading to the birth of the prophet Samuel, specifically at the circumstances which Hannah found herself in the childless wife of Elkanah yearning for a son and at the same time being verbally abused and provoked by Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, who had, in God's providence, been given children. Well, we might uh, conclude that there were uh, difficulties in the family, Uh, not happy families by any standard, we might say, and we have these three main characters in this drama, this family of Elkanah, peninna and Hannah brought to our attention earlier on. Uh, the characters, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but we know that peninna was guilty of lovelessness and you could argue positive animosity towards her co-wife, for want of a better term to use. Strange thing. But... Uh, Was she suffering? Well, she was suffering perhaps in ways that she wasn't aware of herself because she seems to portray a a self-centered individual with no hint of self-giving or other considering. Sad and uh, almost a narcissistic bent to her personality from what we can read here. It's all about me, me, me. And one can only wonder... Uh, what kind of loving mother and domestic educator she might have been uh, for her own children, uh, let alone what kind of uh, wife she was to uh, Elkanah. Sadly, and uh, seemingly unbeknown to her, she was the victim of her own selfishness and pride, and her lack of sympathy uh, was evident, uh, particularly towards Hannah, the childless Hannah. And it's always uh, notable uh, to realize that uh, the curse of selfishness uh, is what the gospel uh, provides a release from uh, for us all. And there was no uh, apparent effect of the grace of God in uh, Peninnah's uh, behavior, at least. Well, what about uh, the husband of these two wives? What about Elkanah? Uh, There had to be some sort of tension, as I think we raised the last time. Some sort of divided loyalty in his life. How on earth uh, can you exist with that sort of tension in your life? Uh, Loyalty divided between two women. Something that just doesn't work uh, in God's way of things. And it certainly doesn't work to create harmony and true peace. It's interesting how the Lord Jesus Christ, in his gospel, in the gospel, he prayed to the Father that they may be one as we are one. And I think that's something that's pertinent for us here as a congregation, that our loyalties aren't divided away from God, that we don't have one foot in one camp and the other foot in another well, could Elkanah be accused of being a victim of his own actions as well? Yes, I think uh, he was guilty of uh, bigamy uh, on one count, and he was bringing unnecessary suffering upon himself and his household. I think that's a fair deduction to make from this. And then we come to what we might argue to be, who we might argue to be the central character in this, Hana. Her suffering came from the actions of others in God's providence. Uh, She is portrayed here as being the loser, if you like, uh, the hard done by person. And uh, if if you're inclined to support the underdog, well, here is one who needs our sympathy. And she is brought here to us by the Lord in his word in order for us to learn from her and to be encouraged by the way God deals with her. It's a mystery how God in his providence can bring difficulties and suffering. And it's as though God uh, is saying to to us through his word, uh, what I am doing just now, you don't know, but later on you will realize. So God's providential oversight is traceable right through this episode. And uh, Hannah's suffering was to be used very clearly by God for his glory, both in the near future and the more distant future in the big picture plan. Uh, One commentator mentions that this uh, first book of Samuel uh, it's talking about kings. Uh, the, the book of Judges makes, makes it quite clear that there was no king in Israel at this time. And when we come to the first book of Samuel, we have Saul of uh, Saul, the son of Kish, being uh, demanded, if you like, by the people uh, to become king. And this was from no king in Judges to man's king. In the first book of Samuel. And then in the second book of Samuel, we have a record of David's kingship, the anointed one of God. So Hannah's suffering was to be changed to joy. Weeping, says the psalmist in Psalm 30, may for a night endure, but joy comes in the morning. God's providential sight was definitely here. And it's a sorry state to be in for all concerned, but arguably more so for Hannah. Hannah prays. And this is what I want to focus on for a few few minutes uh, this morning. Hannah prays, and the narrative continues into God's hearing. There are details of what's going on here. Hannah prays God is listening to her, and Eli Uh, As far as we can see see here, he's misreading all of Hannah's actions. He misreads her lip lip movements and accuses her of being drunk. And uh, later on, what we find is that Hannah's prayer is from the depths of her heart and it is full of sincerity. We read then that Hannah prays, God hears, Eli read her lip movements, and Hannah, uh, God answers Hannah's prayer. He provides. And the wonderful thing is that in God's giving to Hannah, is ro- what is rooted in it all is the grace of God in this provision and the grace that God gives to Hannah to, uh, to vow that she would give back to God what he had given to her. Well, let's just look at a few aspects regarding Hannah's prayer here. First of all, I think that Hannah's prayer is molded through suffering. Now, this is a theme, of course, that's very clear throughout the Bible. We read in verses 10 and 11 in the first chapter here, these words, she was deeply distressed, verse 10, and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. That tells her, tells us something about the deep movements that she was experiencing. And she vowed, verse 11, a vow and said, O Lord Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. He was to be a Nazarite in as far as Hannah was concerned. So here we have Hannah's prayer. What we have here, it's amazing that we have been given uh, an insight into what was going on in Hannah's heart. And as we go on through the narrative, we find that this is not going to end up the way it started at all. In fact, it's going to be a huge uh, transformation in Hannah's Mood, And, of course, that is something that gives each and every one of us hope for ourselves. Uh, I think sometimes we expect God to be answering our prayers for relief from certain situations uh, earlier than God wants us. God is going to work through us in order, first of all, to glorify himself. And I think we find that in the life of Hannah. And here we have the other interesting. Not only is Hannah's uh, prayer molded in suffering, but in the second place, Hannah's prayer has one of an audience. Just one. And that is what we need to be aware of. Who do we pray to? Where is the the direction of our prayer? Are we praying to a vacuum? Are we praying to some sort of empty entity? Are we praying to some sort of image or idol? Well, the Bible makes it quite clear that there has to be only an audience of one. And I have in my notes the word one in capital letters. And that one is the Lord. We find in verse 10, what's written for us there is quite clear. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord. She prayed to the Lord, regardless of what was around her in terms of religious uh, signs or whatever. Even the priest Eli, as we read further on in the passage, he was there. He was aware of her, whether she was aware of him or not. And the Bible lays a lot of emphasis on the importance of one-to-one communion with God in prayer. Corporate prayer, I think, is important. And we must never lose sight of that. But it must be, uh, corporate prayer must be founded on personal prayer, communion with God. It is in the one to one with God that Hannah was wrestling. And the Bible speaks of wrestling with God in prayer, particularly when it comes to uh, people on their own. And that is where mutual benefit in corporate prayer is surely derived from. So personal prayer, I think here, in a very, very wrought situation for Hannah, it's important. Personal prayer uh, to God enables the prayer, the person who is praying, to bear one's soul before the Lord on their own without any embarrassment as to who else or what else is around. And we find that uh, Jesus uh, speaking about, uh, when he's teaching prayer, particularly in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of uh, warning against religiosity in prayer. There was no religiosity as far as Hannah was concerned here. The Lord, she knew, knew her heart. The Lord was seeing what was going on. And in the context of warning against religiosity in prayer, Jesus makes solitary prayer the benchmark of our prayers. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6, this is what is written in God's word. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly, I think it says in the authorized version. And that is going to happen for all who pray in secret to the Lord. Whether The way God is going to reward us openly, we shall see. But the reward that we have from God is that he hears us and he is touched with our, our feelings of insufficiency and of weakness. And this is where Hannah was. In verse 10, verses 10 and 11 here. The third thing I want us to take note of with regard to Hannah's prayer is that her prayer was misinterpreted, or should I more accurately put it this way, her prayer behaviour is misinterpreted, and this comes to Eli. Uh, In verse 12, we read, as as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart and only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Eli has the wrong end of the stick here. He is jumping to the wrong conclusion by what he sees. And of course, anybody uh, of the nature of what he was accusing Hannah of being, would have been totally banned and expelled, excommunicated, if you, if you want, from such a place, from uh, God's house. So Eli has the wrong conclusion, but Hannah's inner, inner sincerity was there, and it was for God alone, regardless of what Eli or anybody else might have thought. Hannah, it would appear, was... Well, as far as we can make out uh, from the passage, unaware of Eli's immediate presence there, and this is something that uh, perhaps uh, affects us all when we're in the presence of others. Uh, there's an awareness when we're praying corporately, particularly, obviously. We are aware of other people around us, and it might make us feel a bit insecure for some reason, perhaps because of uh, inability to express ourselves. Uh, There are two sides to this awareness of others, because it can work against us, uh, and it can work for us. Awareness of others, on the one hand, is one of many obstacles that some have, and awareness on the other hand, in corporate prayer, can stir up pride and overconfidence for those who are more extrovert in nature, particularly for those who stand and lead in prayer. But here we have somebody who is not aware of anything. Her focus is, is to God above, and she is aware that God is seeing what is going on in our heart i think it might be helpful for us just as an aside on this to consider our own views on prayer together and on our own uh, there are many good practices that we may engage in in church which are scriptural we sometimes apply fancy names to gathering together in numbers of more than one we talk about prayer pairs and prayer triplets and sometimes even prayer squares and I would go as far as to say prayer pentagons perhaps even more biblical still prayer heptagons when there are seven people gathered together but to be serious praying together is good and praying together must be practiced when and where we can do it Because the Lord says, does he not, in the context of witnesses, uh, we're witnessing before God where two or three are gathered together in his name. But when we take these things into account, there are some folk genuinely who can feel inhibited in the company of others, and we must make allowances for that. Uh, Perhaps one's church background, uh, if we have one, rightly or wrongly may influence our readiness to speak during open prayer times. Personally, I remember that uh, when I went to university, I joined the, was part of the Christian Union, and to be honest with you, open prayer, in other words, prayer that was voluntary on the part of any individual within a group, this was something that was new to me because I was more familiar Uh, With my free church background in the highlands, with uh, the men in particular being asked to lead in prayer. And I was there for three years, and it took me well into my third year before I got uh, confident enough to start off prayer myself without being asked. And we have uh, difficult situations just now where prayer, particularly corporate prayer, is not easy for us. Zoom Uh, without plugging that medium uh, is a great help but some do find it challenging from what I'm aware of myself challenging to be involved not just in prayer but even in group uh, discussion together. Uh, There are various uh, obstacles that people have. Uh, I can't pray like that other person I can't use these words so All I would say is, or ask perhaps, is it right for us to expect uh, verbal participation just like that at our public prayer meetings when some are genuinely reticent and retiring in their personalities? Are we sufficiently sensitive to reasons for the actions of others in being silent? You know, let me just add this. It's good for us to gather together, as I said already, in public prayer. But please don't come and be afraid of being quiet. Because you're with the praying people and the Lord sees the prayers of the heart as much as he hears the prayers of those who speak them. It's good and right and biblical to meet together for worship of which corporate prayer is part. But let us lovingly encourage one another to be involved without being judgmental on religiosity or piousness. Let us not be pious ourselves. Let us not be uh, thinking that people should be doing this or should be doing that. And I'm addressing myself, and I keep on addressing myself, as an elder in this congregation. It's this sensitivity which, sadly, Eli seemed to lack. And you know, Elkanah, it would appear, lacked that as well because uh, he was was speaking to to Hannah, uh, pleading with her, look, uh, you don't have any children, but am I not of more worth to you than seven sons? Uh, He just didn't see it. He just didn't get it. So it's easy for us to be insensitive. I hope that wasn't going away from the point here, but I think it's helpful for us to think about these things. Fourthly, Hannah's prayer is heard above. Now, this might be repeating again what I've said about God, but the prayer is heard and answered. Now, we might say here, uh, putting these word, uh, putting the word prayer into the plural, that Hannah's prayer. Here is heard, but Hannah's prayers, because this has been going on for a long time. Year after year, we read, and Hannah, from one year to the next, she would have been busy on her knees praying to God in the, in the quiet place, struggling with the circumstances that God and His providence has brought into her experience. And I think if we look at verses 17 and 18, I think these words are beautiful. In many ways, it is Eli speaking, but it is God speaking through Eli. I believe here he's the high priest, after all. Then Eli answered, "Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made him." The Lord uses Eli as a mouthpiece to comfort uh, uh, Hannah in uh, in her uh, difficulty and to comfort her after uh, the wrong accusation of. Eli, the very man who the Lord uses here. It's amazing. Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant you a petition that you have made, made him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way. And here's the beginning of an obvious transformation being made evident to us in the word of God. She went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Weeping might have endured for a night, but here was the dawn of things much, much better in her experience. Well, what a wonderful transformation we have the beginnings of here. Hannah's change of expression demonstrates the beginnings, at least of an inner peace and happiness from her Lord. And this is what we have to believe that God will do for us in different circumstances. That we might find ourselves, as it were, in a long, dark, winding tunnel, but there is light at the other end, whether we see it uh, at the moment or not, because of the bends and the twists in the tunnel, the Lord is taking us on, and he will bring us into light from the darkness. Now, that might happen in the scene of time, But for the Lord's people, it is assured when the Lord comes to bring them to be home with himself forever. Well, here is the the germination, if you like, or the foundation of the exultant words that we have uh, in uh, chapter 2 of this passage. It's a wonderful thing that God is showing us that he is sovereignly at work here in, in, in Hannah's experience. If you look at verse nineteen, uh, verses 19 and 20, we read these words. Uh, they rose early in the morning and uh, worshipped before the Lord, then went back to their house of drama, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. There's an anthropomorphism being used here uh, ascribing memory to the Lord. Of course, God doesn't forget. God knows. But it's as though through the passage of time, it's as though God is wakening up in a very clear way that his memory is being stirred and that favorably things are happening in Hannah's experience What a wonderful thing we read in verse 20. And in due time, in God's time, I don't think this is particularly referencing the gestation period of the child in the womb of Hannah. I think it's more applying to the time that God may take, be it short or be it long, to bring to fruition his own purpose in Hannah's life. In due time, Hannah conceived... And bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. She receives here an answer to her prayer. Maybe you are having to wait for that answer out of a difficulty in which you are finding yourself in just now. But believe this, that in due time, the Lord will grant you. Maybe he's saying no at the moment. But it's amazing how I think though it's not written uh, uh, in the words here, we can read between the lines that Hannah was so reconciled to what God had done or not done up until now in her life, even though it was difficult. What Hannah seems to be, what's happening to Hannah is for our benefit, as it's recorded in Scripture, The Lord is pressing her. The Lord is giving her grace and taking her through a trying time. And at the same time, from Hannah, we see the fruit of grace as she patiently waits on the Lord. And fifthly, Hannah's prayer promise is fulfilled. Well, we find in in these verses, in verse 21 onwards, that uh, the child is born and the child is weaned and the child, Samuel, is brought to the Lord. Elkanah, her husband, verse 23, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him, and so on, there's sacrifices brought to the house of the Lord, there is the, the sacrifice I'm not going into that in great detail, but there was this Levitical sacrifice that had to be given at the time, and the portions for that sacrifice were at least as much as had been prescribed in, in the Pentateuch. The interesting thing here is that when Elkanah and Hannah arrive at the the church, if you like, uh, I wonder how often ministers and pastors have somebody arriving at the door and says, do you remember me? Well, I've been embarrassed by, uh, I admit this, meeting people at the door who have been before, and whom I, I just couldn't remember that they were there. And it's as oh saying, do you remember me, Eli? I was the woman, verse 26. I was the woman whom you mistook all these years ago for a worthless drunk some time ago. I wonder how Eli felt when he was told that. In verse 26, that's what we read. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord. It's almost in these opening words of Hannah's explaining to Eli, we can see some of the transformation already. She's full of excitement. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord. She's excited in bringing this uh, child that the Lord has given to her to the service of the Lord. She seems to be bursting with enthusiasm at the prospect of giving Samuel to the Lord as she had promised. What a wonderful thing that is. And for her, from these, from these words, I think we can read uh, gospel truth so clearly there that it was indeed a more blessed thing for her to give than to receive. Oh yes, she was happy when the Lord, uh, when the Lord allowed her to conceive a child in her womb. She was happy then. But it seems that the greatest blessing of all in all of this is the giving of what the Lord had given to her. And what a lesson that is for you and me. So often we're reticent. We're not even able to recognize the good things that the Lord has given us. And we're very selfish in not sharing what talents or gifts that the Lord may have given to us. But here was Hannah, absolutely unreserved in her desire to serve the Lord. And as we recall, he was to be a Nazarite and his hair wasn't to be cut. I always wonder what Samuel's hair was like at the time of his death. Verses 19 and 20 then have showed us that God is sovereignly at work and God's purpose is outworked in the following verses. For her, giving was to be part of her. You know, there's not very much about Hannah in Scripture, but it's amazing how much we can learn for God's glory for ourselves as we look at her here. And that can apply to any man, woman, woman, or boy and girl so we come to the lord without difficulties weeping may for a night endure indeed but at morn doth joy arise there is the rainbow promise for us at the time of noah when god promised that he would never destroy the earth again we have that promise secured for us that god will never abandon his own people i will never leave you nor abandon you, says the Lord Jesus. And as we reach chapter, chapter 2, here is the product of all that has been going on. It's almost as if there's been grapes in a wine press being pressed out, and the juice of the grapes is flowing out in all its sweetness and richness and aroma in chapter 2. And chapter 2 was meant to be my sermon today. But I'm afraid we have to leave it there. And as we reach chapter 2, the first scene of darkness, the initial scene of darkness in the earlier chapter is transformed into a, a scene of joy and praise to God expressed by Hannah in this prayer of praise. Prayer seems to be the key word here. And that's what our prayers ought to include. Not just asking God for but praising God for, for who he is. What a transformation then is in evidence that had begun earlier in what we read in verse 16 of chapter 1, describing uh, Hannah's plight uh, after Eli's criticism. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great Anxiety and vexation. This was had been a trying time for her, and yet God was in it. God uh, sovereignly and providentially and mysteriously allowed this woman, and through suffering, she is brought from darkness to light. And the light is shining brightly, particularly as we see it in chapter two. And Hannah. This time, with our prayer being recorded for us in all its fullness, speaks of praise and sovereignty attributed to God. And I trust that this will be a comfort to us. We're living in difficult times. We're living in times when we can't associate with, ourse- with one another uh, in a normal way. But God is there for us. And whether you live alone or whether you live in company, Whether you find yourself alone, God still hears and listens. He is the hearer and answerer of prayer. And the Psalms speak very clearly of that, giving us guidance as to how to voice our petitions. Sometimes, as Paul says, writing in the Romans, we don't know what to pray for or ask as we should. But that doesn't stop there because we're reminded that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs and groans which are inaccessible and yet sometimes they're the most audible to God. Our silence deafens or can deafen God in heaven. Our silence verbally is... It's something that creates in us speechlessness to our own benefit because the Lord hears a broken spirit. A broken spirit, writes the psalmist, is to God a pleasing sacrifice, a broken and a contrite heart. Lord, you will not despise. So joy after sadness. Light after dark and the greater light yet awaits those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you will bless your word to us. We pray that you would enable us to learn more and more from it and be encouraged by it. Oh, Lord, we thank you for Hannah's dedication. May your spirit work in us, similar dedication, in our uh, sincerity to you, and in our giving to you, as you hear us and answer our prayers. May these be undergirded by the prayer of Jesus himself, who said, not my will, but yours be done. And when we are in your will, Lord, we will be happy. Hear us and bless your word to your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.